0: We went into full Olympic mode at the Miller House this summer. It started and ended every day, and our boys were seeing for the first time the amazing feats that a gymnast or a swimmer or a triathlete can accomplish. We were helping them decipher the speed of a men's volleyball serve or a diver from the tallest platform. Serves, by the way, were about 65 miles an hour, and divers hit the water at like 30 to 35, which is just unbelievable to me. Anyway, we're, you know, watching the heats where the athlete has no chance of advancement and commending not only how excellent they still perform, but what it means to be dedicated and show up. It's amazing. And, and the Olympics are problematic. This year, every year, Rio displaced thousands of people from Favelas hiding their poverty. Los Angeles has no good solution for the unhoused for the 2028 games, but certainly wants them out of sight, if not in real shelter. Athens built a new softball stadium when they hosted in 2004. It was promptly abandoned after the games, and it's now a refugee camp. But they don't want you to see that. They want you to see the city shining, the athletes beaming, the machine humming, And this dynamic can be captured best by the 2008 Summer Games in Beijing, China. At one point, an aerial shot of the city showed not only skyscrapers and the Bird's Nest Stadium, but then at the green edges, green. Not hills. Not grass. Green netting. Draped right over the tops of whole sections of town that were deemed unappealing. But the netting was made to blend in. So you really had to look to notice it. Otherwise, you wouldn't see. The message was pretty clear. We don't want you to see this. Pay no attention to the reality behind the veil. We have two final weeks in this series where we've been led exclusively by African-American theologians. As a group, we want to listen to the ways they help us all read the Bible better. And so we're going to close out this series looking specifically at how we can follow their lead with the oh-so-easy read that is Revelation. There are two major areas where Black theologians can speak to this book and help us understand it in ways we might miss without their perspectives. We'll do one today, and that's about how this book is apocalyptic. We'll do another next week, how the book is violent. You may recall that Curtis taught a bit about apocalyptic as a genre back when we came to it in Matthew, He unpacked Jesus' apocalyptic words for us and helped us better understand how that genre works. But it actually shows up in other places in the Bible, not just Jesus' words, but also Daniel and, most famously probably, Revelation. Since you don't actually hang on every word Curtis says, and let's be honest, neither do I, a bit of review for all of us. Four quick things that apocalyptic is and is not. First, It is not a genre that tells us what happens at the end of time. It is about the ways that kingdom realities become present realities. That heavenly realities become earthly realities. It's not, though, about the realities that come to be when this space-time continuum reaches its end. Second, apocalyptic literally means unveiling. There's something that's true But hidden. And the writers seen that truth. And so they turn and they offer that vision to the community. They are unveiling truth. But the tricky part is, number three, apocalyptic is also the language of the oppressed. The truths that are meant to be unveiled are for the sake of the marginalized, the suffering, the squashed. And so in order to pass that along, the language has to be coded and cryptic and full of images that have meaning for the group, but is also hopefully going to escape the censors. And that, of course, makes it far more confusing for us so many years later. Fourth, apocalyptic is a vision of what's real according to the priorities and purposes of heaven, of God, of eternity. It's aligned with what's most real in that way, most permanent. And so apocalyptic is the vision of the end of an age or an era on this earth because that age is so much against the eternal and good purposes of Yahweh. So again, apocalyptic is about... Kingdom realities becoming present realities. It literally means unveiling. It's coded in order for the oppressed to hear, but the censors not to notice. And it is about aligning to the priorities and purposes of heaven. And when that's not happening, bringing it to an end. When it comes to the book of Revelation, then, how does this come to life? John is writing to a group of Christians who live at a time when Rome dominates culture, and especially when Rome has a practice of emperor worship. There are these guilds, for example, which are sort of like the uh, first century version of a union. They're professional groupings that together give each other business opportunity and help make the economy go, but also a guild practices worship of the emperor. And they see that as really important because they believe that their economic flourishing happens because of the emperor being pleased with them. And so if you were a Christian at this time who perhaps was a woodworker, you would be expected as a part of this guild to participate in emperor worship, and it would be exceedingly difficult to opt out. So if apocalyptic then is an unveiling, what is it John hopes these folks at this point see? First, much like the netting in Beijing, If we pull it back, we see this is evil. It is so far from the heart of God. John hopes that by giving his apocalyptic vision to these people, they will see that emperor worship, the practices that go with it, and the direction of the culture overall is truly evil. That they would have eyes to see that clearly. Consider one example of this unveiling in order to see evil clearly. This is Revelation 18, verses 4 to 20. The vision says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Her, in this case, is Babylon. Render to her as she herself has rendered, repay her double for her deeds, mix a double drought for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart, she says, I rule as a queen. I am no widow and I will never see grief. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day. Now, this is what we see after this. As the evil is revealed and the consequences of that evil ending are about to be enacted, there are three groups that react to the end of the age of evil. First in verse nine, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand off in fear of torment and say, alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour, your judgment has come. Group two, verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice, flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, slaves, and human lives. And they say, these merchants, who clearly have a robust, vibrant business happening out of Babylon, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. They are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city, clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in one hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. So again, the kings grieve because it's fallen. The merchants grieve because the economy's gone. And last, the shipmasters, verse 17. The shipmasters and seafarers, sailors and all who trade on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in what hour she has been laid waste. And so these three groups— The kings, the merchants, the seafarers, all of them had been benefiting from the evil. And when it is revealed that the evil is coming to an end, they all grieve. Instead, though, comes the encouragement of John to the readers who proclaim Jesus as Lord. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heavens, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. See, John hopes to unveil what's evil and have his readers see it clearly. If they do, they will not be like the kings and the merchants and the seafarers, grieving the loss of earthly things like power and profit. Instead, they'll come into alignment with God on the need for the end of the era, and they will rejoice over it. They won't mourn like those who benefited from the evil they will be glad that the evil is ending. And this encouragement is so important because for these folks, it would be really easy to feel like accommodating Rome is just a necessary evil. What else can you do? I mean, let's be realistic here. My livelihood depends on being part of the system. It seems kind of impossible to do anything else. And for these folks, it might also have seemed impossible that God would win over Rome right now. And yet, if they can see clearly what is evil, and that God can and will be ending that, then they can resist. So the first thing John hopes to unveil is the reality of evil in order that it would inspire a hopeful resistance in response. Brian Blunt has been one of our main theologians for this book of Revelation. He has a section on African-American Christian ethics in his book, but he also has an entire commentary on Revelation alone he reminds us that this idea of hopeful resistance even though the end of the era seems impossible is also something we hear in the narratives of the enslaved africans in the united states think about spirituals for example so many negro spirituals used the language of apocalyptic they spoke of stars falling from the sky. They spoke of the end of kings. Because they were powerless, and because it was a coded way to call out the evils of chattel slavery, spirituals were the way they could sing out their hope. And singing together was a way of resisting this reality, instead hoping for the future where they would be free. And that all seemed impossible. And yet, if they could keep their vision for the end of this evil, and their hope that God would bring a due day, they can resist. For us, I ask, what might be unveiled if we ask God to help us see evil clearly? Where might we be called to hopeful resistance? And where might we need the bolstering of a clear vision for what we're standing for and against? Now, second, since the apocalyptic is unveiling— John also hopes we will see who is really Lord. Revelation 5 says, I saw at the right hand of one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion is Lord. Referring to Judah and the root of David points to it as Jesus. And the seventh scroll is the symbol of completion, much like day seven in the creation narrative. It's the reality when God alone reigns and evil ends. It's all being brought together. Who inaugurates this reality? Jesus, the lion, who has conquered. And so in the vision, John looks for the lion and turns his eyes to the throne and, verse 6, I saw between the throne the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb, "'standing as if it has been slaughtered, "'having seven horns and seven eyes, "'which are the seven spirits of God, "'set out into all the earth. "'He went and took the scroll "'from the right hand of the one "'who was seated on the throne. "'When he had taken the scroll, "'the four living creatures and the 24 elders "'fell before the lamb, "'each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, "'which are the prayers of the saints. "'They sing a new song. "'The lion is a lamb, and the lamb is a lion. "'In offering himself as a lamb,' Overcome by earthly powers, tools, and weapons, surrendering to violence, Jesus was raised up to be greater than any earthly power, a lion. John hopes his readers will see that the one to end the evil, the one who really is in control, the one who truly is Lord, is Jesus. It's not just that you have hopeful resistance for a better reality, but that you trust in the person who brings the reality about. It's not just that you have hopeful resistance for a better reality, but that you trust in the one who brings the reality about. And Blunt puts it this way Revelation's revelation is that Jesus Christ is Lord. John's vision is meant to help the people to both stand up to evil and bow down to Christ. Like those in the throne room, then, the response to Jesus as Lord is worship. The verse goes on to say, verse 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The witness of the enslaved, the witness of John, is that we worship the lamb who's a lion, the lion who is a lamb. If you go full lion, you get destroyed in an uprising. If you go full lamb, nothing changes. When you see that our Jesus is both and that the reality he stands for is the end of the evil that oppresses you and causes your suffering, you can live In hopeful resistance and offer spirituals in worship. So, John hopes people see that they experience an unveiling. If they see that Jesus is Lord, they will keep living like Jesus is Lord. If they keep living like Jesus is Lord, they will resist evil in its many Roman forms. But if they don't see, it's nearly impossible to live with this hopeful resistance. And I think we can observe what happens for some who don't see. Because our circumstances or experiences don't cause us to. In our context now, we might say that white Christian liberalism worships the lamb. Sweet, gentle Jesus who always just inspires us to get along more and will transform us with their benevolent love. On the other hand, white Christian nationalism worships the lion who destroys everything that stands against them. And in both cases, There's something they don't quite see. And so our response is to turn again and again to scripture because it helps us see. Our response is to keep gathering with a group that wants to follow Jesus together because we see in one another in our stories how Jesus is both lion and lamb. We see clearly the evil in our world and we practice ending it together collective gathering helps us notice the things that have been netted over. And the response is worship to our Jesus, who is the lion and the lamb, to turn our full hearts to him. When we were together live, this is when we just spent some time in worship. And if you have a few minutes before you go on with your day, I'd encourage you to do the same, to grab maybe just one song that points you back to the reality of who Jesus is, and allows you to open your heart to him. May the Holy Spirit give us eyes to see, courage to act in response, and worship to fill our hearts as we do. Amen.